Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Well, we're going to start off today by playing a game. How many of you, when you were kids, you ever played that game, Would You Rather? Did you ever play that game? Okay, I'm going to need a little audience participation this morning. We're going to play Would You Rather. All right, so the new iPhone 12 just came out. So my first question is, would you rather have the new iPhone or an Android? Let me hear you. Man, Android people. Wow. Y'all are so strange. Okay, how about this one? Um, would you rather go on a cruise or a Disney vacation? Disney. The correct answer was a Disney cruise. That was the correct answer. Okay. All right. How about this one? It is the holidays. So would you rather have a real tree or a fake tree? Yeah. Fake people use fake trees. That's all I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> all right. Hey, one more, one more. Last one. Would you rather... Be rich or poor? That's an awkward question, isn't it? It's an awkward question, especially in our day when everybody's PC. We're like, no, I don't want to be rich. But at the same time, we know that we don't really want to be poor. If we could have things our way, we would be rich. So much of our time, energy, and our, our focus is really centered around money. How much money do we have? How much money are we spending? How can we get a little bit more money? That's why, especially around the holidays, there's so much stress and anxiety because a lot of people are focusing on money. When it comes to your job, you're overworked, you're overpaid. No, you're not. You're underpaid. You're overextended. And then for many of us, our bills are piling up. Our rent is due. We feel overwhelmed when it comes to our finances. And then in culture, there's a lot of prominence that is put on the rich and the famous. We all follow them on Instagram. We watch their TV shows. We buy their magazines at CVS. When we're in the checkout, we're looking, oh my Lord, they did what? Wow, look at that. And we spend so much time and energy focused on money because honestly, we'd all rather be rich. We all think that if we can make just a little bit more money, then everything in our life is going to go better. If we can make some more money, then we're finally going to get that house. We're finally going to get that car. We're finally going to be able to afford the life that we always desire to be. And so if we could just get a little bit more money, then everything's going to be a little bit better. Question, would you rather be rich or would you rather be poor? This is church, so don't lie because God can strike you dead. Would you rather be rich or would you rather be poor? The truth is, we'd all rather be rich. Now, that question makes us on comfortable, but I want you to know this. There's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with having money because money is just a thing. Money is just a thing. Money is a tool. And what really matters is how you use it. Think about money kind of like a scalpel. It's a tool. In a surgeon's hands, that money could be used to bring life. It could bring healing and it could help a lot of people. But in the wrong hands, say like a serial killer, it could bring death. It could bring destruction. It could bring pain, horror, terror, because that's just what money is. It really matters what you do with it. Money can be a good thing, but money can also be a bad thing. Money can be a blessing, but at the same 
same time, money can also be a curse. Money can buy a house, but money, as many of you know, can actually tear a family apart. It really just depends what you do with it. Would you rather be rich or would you rather be poor? It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. Some of y'all don't really want to answer that question. No worries. I'll ask you a different question. Would God rather you be rich or poor? You're like, I'm not answering that one, pastor. I'm not answering. That's, that's a trick question. I know how pastors work, and that was a trick question. And if that's what you think, well, you're right, because it was. And that's what we're going to be looking at today as we continue our study through the book of Mark that we're calling the Simple Gospel. If you have your Bibles, turn through to Mark chapter 12, verse 38, and we're going to answer this awkward question, would God rather you be rich or poor by looking at the lives of two people. We're going to see two characters in the story that are completely the opposite of one another. One character is going to be very rich. The other character is going to be very poor. One character is going to be very wealthy. The other is going to be a widow. We're going to be looking at the story of the widow's might, where she gave two pennies, the last that she had. And we're going to see what Jesus has to say about money. We're going to learn three lessons from the Lord Jesus when it comes to money in Mark 12, 38. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're going to read it all up front, make a few observations. And then I want to give you three lessons the Lord Jesus has to teach us about money and in his teaching. Who's teaching? Sorry to wake you up from your nap. Who's teaching? Jesus. That's right. And so Jesus is going to teach about money. And so if you get offended about anything I say, take it up with him because this is his teaching. Okay. And Jesus was teaching about money. He said, beware of the scribes. Those are the religious leaders who walk around in long flowing robes. More on that in a little bit. And like greetings in the marketplace and they have the best seats in the synagogue. And if you are at redemption, the front row is the best seat. If you grew up Baptist, the back seat is the best row. The best rows, the best seats in the synagogues. And they place, does he always say things like that? Yes, he does. Is he going to get better? No, it's going to get worse. And places of honor at the feast and devour widows' houses. And for pretense, they make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. So your uncle who prayed for five minutes over Thanksgiving dinner, greater condemnation. Verse 41, and he said, sat down at the opposite of the treasury and he watched people putting in their money in the offering box. Let me just go ahead and pause there. I don't know how you read the Bible, but I read this and I think, Jesus, that was rude. Did you see that? He's watching what people are giving. He's sitting there for, he's like, Amber, I saw that. (laughs) He's like, oh, Adrian, you think that's funny? I saw that too. Oh, you put in, oh, how much? Oh, okay. So Jesus is watching what people are giving, right? If I did that, you know, y'all would be like, we need to have a board meeting. Pastor Byron's watching everybody's offering. Okay, he's just, oh, 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 oh. but that's what Jesus does. How rude of Jesus, but Jesus is still watching what you're giving. And he sat down opposite of the treasury and watched the people putting in their money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to himself and said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more in to the offering than all of other offerings, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. Now, in this story, 
we meet two characters that are the opposite of one another. The first that we meet is the rich. The second we meet is a widow who is in poverty. One is the religious leaders. Now, over the last several weeks, we've become very familiar with the religious leaders because we're in a part of Mark that is known as the five temple controversies. It is the last week of the life of Jesus. This story takes place on a Wednesday. He is going to be murdered on a Friday. And the week begins with Jesus cleansing the temple of how the religious leaders are collecting and receiving their offering. Jesus goes into the temple. He starts flipping over the tables, driving out the money changers. Mark 11 said he would not let anyone enter or exit. And then in John's gospel, it tells us that he made a whip. Like that's premeditated. Okay, he made a whip. He didn't go and buy a whip. No, no, no. He made a whip. Jesus saw what was going on in the temple. He's like, mm, I'll be right back. And he walked over and he sat down and he just made a whip. Just do, 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 making a whip. Hey, this is me making a whip. And then he comes back and he's like, hey, look at everybody. And he just starts whipping all of the religious leaders. Now, why would he do that? Because he says some very strong words against him. He calls them thieves. He calls them liars. He calls them murderers. And then he even says this. He says that you have turned my house, which is to be a house of prayer for the nations, and you have made it into a den of robbers. This is why here in Mark 12, he says, you devour the widow's houses. Now, why would Jesus say this? Well, you need to be a little bit familiar with first century Judaism at this time. See, in the Old Testament, God said that his people every year would need to journey to Jerusalem, go to the temple, and perform sacrifices as a remembrance of how God delivered them from Egypt in a thing that was known as the Passover, where literally God passed over all of the slaves of Egypt and anyone who had the blood of a lamb over their doorpost would be passed over, their life would be spared. And then God delivered his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt. And God never wanted them to forget that he was the one who delivers them. He was the one who rescues them. He was the one to save them. And so every year they had to commemorate Passover by going to Jerusalem during the Holy Week, and they would have to go to the temple and perform their sacrifices. Well, over a period of about 100 years, religious leaders realized they could make a lot of money off of this. So they built a whole system, kind of like a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scam, where the poorest people would have to come in and they would have to pay, and then it would go up the ladder, and guess who is sitting at the top of the pyramid? It was cha-ching, the religious leaders. Here's how it would work in their day. They did not accept Roman money. You couldn't use Roman money because it had Caesar's face, and to them that was considered idolatry. We studied that a few weeks ago. And so you had to use what is called the temple shekel. Now, the problem with that is, is it is not a dollar for dollar exchange rate. No, most commentators would say that it was a one to 16 times the average going rate. So how many of you ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? You ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? Okay, your, your money is no good at Chuck E. Cheese, right? You have to exchange your money at Chuck E. Cheese if you want to play the games. You have to use Chucky Bucks or whatever they're called, right? And so it's the same principle. If you want to get into the temple, you had to use temple money. If you wanted to pay your tithes, you had to pay them in temple money. If you wanted to buy your sacrifice, you had to pay it in temple money. But $1 for you is not $1 in the temple. $1 for you is $16 for the religious leaders. 
So let's say you have been saving all year and you wanna pay your tithe and your tithe happened to be $1,000. Well, guess how much your tithe is gonna be now? $16,000. Let's say you wanna make a sacrifice on behalf of your family so that your sins can be forgiven. Say you buy a lamb, it costs you a hundred bucks. No, 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 that lamb now costs $1,600. Let's say you wanna meet with a priest so that way you can pray. Typically, you wouldn't even have to pay for it, but because you're in the temple and you're meeting with their priest, you need to pay $10. But no, 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 it's not $10. It's gonna be $160 because if you wanna pray, you gotta pay. And if you want your sins to be forgiven, well, then you gotta pay up or else God doesn't love you and God's not gonna forgive your sins. You see how crooked and wicked this is? And who's making all the money? It's the religious leaders. And business is good. Josephus, the early church historian, he actually said that during this time on Passover, there would be 500,000 sacrifices performed in a single day. You're looking at millions of dollars going right into the hands of the religious leaders. They're very rich and they're very wealthy. They were for-profit prophets who were making a profit off of the pain of the people while they're lining their pockets. That's the religious leaders. But for the religious leaders, they were also the most famous people in Israel. Like little boys, when they're growing up today, they want to be rock stars or athletes or have a YouTube channel. I don't know what kids want these days, but those days, if you were a Jewish boy, you wanted to grow up to become a religious leader because the religious leaders, they were rich. They were successful. They were powerful. They were prominent. They were the top of the class. They were the who's who. And they were the wealthiest people in the land. They were basically like the Jeff Bezos, the Bill Gates, the Donald Trumps. That's who they were. They were the richest people in the land and everybody admired them. But then you have another woman and she's a widow. She's the poorest of the poor. She's the lowest of the low. She would actually be an outcast. She would be rejected, dejected, and, and marginalized because she didn't have a family to be able to take care of her. She didn't have a husband who would provide for her. She had no one. She was all alone and she had two copper coins, which equaled a penny. In fact, that's what it says right here. That word there is the Greek word lepta, which means a sliver. She basically had a sliver of a coin. That's all. She didn't have a coin. She had two slivers of a coin and that's all that she had. And she gave it all. That's why Jesus says, look at all of those rich people putting their offering in the offering plate. They gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. They gave what they had. She gave all that she had. And then Jesus said, sets up the story with two people, rich or poor. So my original question was, would you rather be rich or would you rather be poor? Now, when it comes to reading the Bible, here's what I want you to understand. You're the rich. You're like, but I don't feel very rich. No, you're the rich. When it comes to the Bible and as the Bible speaks on poverty and the poor, I want you to understand something, that we are the rich. Typically, we would read this and we would identify with the widow woman. We say, that's me, I'm the widow woman. I don't wanna be one of those religious leaders. They're all nasty. And I know what Pastor Byron says about religious people, that religion takes a good thing, turns it into a bad thing because religion ruins everything. I've listened to the sermon called Jesus Hates Religion. And I even went on the podcast and listened to the latest sermon called Jesus Still Hates Religion. I know that it's not good for me to be religious, so I don't wanna be the religious leaders. No, I'm gonna be the widow. That's who I am. I am the widow. Ask my landlord because I can't pay it. All right. I am the widow. Well, that really just betrays an American mindset 
that really just shows us that we have a very Western worldview when it comes to money. Because when the Bible speaks about the rich, truth be told, the Bible is actually talking about us because we are the rich. Okay, I want you to put aside all of the class warfare. I want you to put aside all of the propaganda and rhetoric when it comes to money and all of the debate on socialism and capitalism. And what I want you to understand is that our worldview of money is not the way that the Bible presents our finances. Because for us, wealth is comparative. See, we like to compare our wealth to other people and compared to other people, nobody's rich because there's always somebody who has more than us. And so we compare ourselves, say you make $25,000, you compare yourself to the person who makes $50,000 and you're like, they make so much money, but that person who's making 50, they're looking at the person who's making 100 and they're like, hey, they're making more money than me. And the person making 100 is looking to the person making 500, who's making a million, who's making a billion and nobody ever thinks they're rich because there's always somebody who has more than us. That's how we gauge wealth here in America. It's all comparative, but Jesus doesn't tell us to compare ourselves to other people. No, he says that we need to love our neighbors. He doesn't say compare yourself to your neighbor in their two-car garage with their brand new cars and their 3.5 kids and their picket fence. He doesn't say compare yourself to their neighbor. He says, love your neighbor. And who's your neighbor? Everyone. Not just the person who lives across the street, but the person who lives across town. And not just the person who lives in your city, your neighbor is everyone, even people in other countries and in other nations. Did you know that the average person in the world lives on $2 a day? Compared to them, you're the rich. If you were to take your income and you were to write it down, and then you were to go to globalrichlist.com, in 2017, the average, or rather the $24,000 was the US poverty line in America, $24,000 for a family. Today, that would be considered poverty for us. But when you enter that into globalrichlist.com, then you would see that even the poorest in America are in the top 5% wealthiest people in the world. And a family who makes $60,000 not only are in the top 1%, they're in the top one-fifth of 1% richest people in the world. And so for all the talk about rich people shouldn't exist and we need to tax the rich and I can't believe the rich and the rich are so terrible and horrible and wicked, just realize you're the rich. If you have shoes on your feet, food in your belly, a roof over your head, then you're the rich. If you can read, you're the rich. If you can flush a toilet, you're the rich. And for all of the people on the left who's freaking out about everything, if you can tweet on your iPhone while drinking your Starbucks, guess what? You're the rich. So go ahead, delete your account and sit down because you're also the rich. Let's just go ahead and be honest with ourselves. When it comes to God's view, we are the rich. In America, we're the most blessed, the most prosperous, the most wealthy nation, not only in the world right now, but also throughout all of human history. As we read the Bible, I want you to know that we are the rich. Now, I don't tell you that to make yourself feel bad. And I don't tell you that to make you feel guilty, but here's what I want. I want for you to be honest. I want for you to be honest with yourself. I want for you to be honest with the scriptures. And I want you to recognize your position and station in life. Because if I don't push you on this, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna read this section of verses and you're gonna set yourself up like you're the hero and everybody else is the problem. 
You're going to read this and you're going to think, I'm the victim and everybody else is the enemy and the oppressors who are oppressing me. That's not how we teach you to read the Bible here at Redemption. The way we teach the Bible is the Bible is not a magnifying glass. Do you know the difference between a mirror and a magnifying glass? A magnifying glass is where you use the Bible to find everybody's problems but your own. A mirror is where you hold up God's word to your life and you allow God to show you the areas in which you are to grow. We don't use the Bible as a magnifying glass to beat other people up. We use the Bible as a mirror to build up ourselves. That's what we do. And the danger, if we don't have this conversation up front, is this, is you're gonna take this verse and you're going to apply it to everyone else when truly you need to begin to apply it to yourself. When it comes to the wealthy in the world, we're the rich. When the Bible talks about the rich, the Bible is talking about us. So try that on precise. You're the rich. Feels good, doesn't it? Maybe not. We'll keep reading. Okay. So Jesus is going to tell us three things about money. And the first thing he's going to tell us is this. If you're taking notes, write this one down. It is a warning about self-righteousness. So what lessons can we learn? First, in Mark 12, 38, it's a warning about self-righteousness. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in their long flowing robes. And they like greetings in the marketplace and they have the best seats in the synagogue and places of honor at the feasts. But they devoured the widow's houses and for pretense, they make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. When it comes to money, you have two options. First option is this, you can love money and you can use people or you can use people and you can love money. Which one do you think that the religious leaders are doing, right? They're using, they're, they're loving money and they're using people. That's why they are devouring widows' houses. They don't love God by using money, but rather they are loving money and they're misusing, abusing, and they're hurting other people through their view of their money. Write this down. It's very important. Money is never a matter of the wallets. Money is always a matter of the heart. See, most people think that money is a matter of the wallets. They think if I had more money, then I would be different. But if you're not taking the action and steps today to have a different life, then the more money you make will not make you a different person. It will only reveal the person that is already inside of you because money is never a matter of the wallet. Money is always a matter of the heart. People say, if I make a little bit more money, then I'm gonna spend more time with my family. No, you won't. Because if you're not spending time with them now, you won't spend time with them. People think if I just can have a little bit more money, then I'm not gonna work so many hours. No, you will continue to work those hours because the, the, the system that you're living now is set up to get the results that you are getting at this very moment. And the more money you make, the more hours you're going to have to work to be able to keep up with the standard of living that you have set for yourself. People think if I just make more money, then I'm gonna be nicer, then I'm gonna be kinder, then I'm gonna be more generous towards others. But if you're not generous now, it don't matter how much money you make, you will never be generous because money is never a matter of of the wallet. Money is always a matter of the hearts. How do you treat people is what matters most to God. See, look, God doesn't care whether you're rich or poor. What God cares about is how you treat people. That's what matters the most. God is not concerned with how much money you make. He's more concerned with what kind of person your money is making you. Because money is never a matter of the wallets. Money is always a matter of the hearts. And so Jesus says, watch out. 
and guard yourself and look out against the scribes, the religious leaders, and those who are self-righteous. Because with more money comes more responsibility to treat others. With more money comes more opportunity to misuse and abuse others. It really just depends what you do with it. So here's six characteristics that Jesus gives us to be on guard, to be alert, and to watch out for when it comes to our finances and self-righteousness. The first one is this, conspicuous consumption. He says, they like to walk around in long flowing robes. Now here in Southeast Texas, we probably don't got a lot of dudes who like to walk around in long flowing robes, amen? Not a lot of dudes are like, hey babe, are you going to Kohl's today? I'd really like to get me one of those long flowing robes, right? Not a lot of dudes in Southeast Texas, maybe in Austin, but not in Southeast Texas. Want to wear those long, but here's the, here's the thing. It's really about dressing to impress. That's what it is. It's, it's presenting yourself with a persona so that way other people think you are different than what you really are. That some people like to be seen for what they wear and not truly seen for who they are. This is what sociologists call conspicuous consumption. It's where you buy something not for the functionality of the product, but for the identity that it produces. You are presenting yourself and positioning yourself by projecting an image that is actually not true. So maybe your thing isn't close. Maybe it is. But maybe it's the car you drive. Maybe it's the house that you live in. Maybe it's the neighborhood that you raise your kids in. Maybe it's the school that you send your kids to. Maybe it's your social media platform. Maybe it's how many followers you have on Instagram. Maybe it's that watch. A great example would be a watch. Right? There's, a, there's some people, they like to buy the $3,000 watch, and then there's others who they buy a $30 watch. Just so you know, a $30 watch tells the same time as a $3,000 watch. But that $3,000 watch tells us something about you more than it tells us what time it is. Because you're projecting an image of success and power that you want other people to respect and to revere you for. Another great example is a minivan. Okay, no dude wants to drive a minivan. We do it because we love our kids. We do it because we make sacrifices for our family. We do it because our wives tell us we have to. That's why we drive a minivan. But no dude wants to drive a minivan because a minivan makes you feel like a mini man. <laughs> but that 250 on a lift Ho, 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 ho. That says something about you, doesn't it? And all the guys who work at the plants, they're like, all right, pastor, move on to the next point. That's called conspicuous consumption. Listen, you do not have to buy something to impress people you don't even know. But that's what a lot of us do. We spend money we don't have to buy things that we don't need to impress people that we don't even like. That's called conspicuous consumption. And it's the reason that so many people are in debt, overextended and stressed out, especially during the holidays. Just something to pray about. Second thing is this, a desire for recognition. They like greetings in the marketplace. They're like, did you see so-and-so? Oh, did you see so-and-so? Did you see what they posted? Oh, did you see what they said? Oh, I need to go talk to them. Oh, I've been waiting to have a conversation with them. Oh, oh, they didn't say hi to me. Oh, I'm just not so special anymore. They didn't say hi to me. I like my greetings in the marketplace. Here's what they're doing, right? They're rubbing elbows. They're stroking egos. They're like, they're like dogs at a dog park who just, just sniffing each other. That's what they're doing. And some of y'all laugh because you 
you might be this person, okay? <laughs> so every time you go to a party or an event and every time you go to work or a big meeting, all you're doing is trying to find the best greetings in the marketplace. Watch out, be alert, be on guard against self-righteousness. My favorite, number three, virtue signaling. Have you ever seen this one? Okay, have you ever seen this one? Like this is so prominent in our society today where you have to say the right thing, use the right hashtags and be offended about the newest cause that there is. And if you're not offended with the latest trend, then all of a sudden you're canceled. Nobody's talking to you. You're not important anymore. You didn't say the right thing. And if I go to your Twitter account and I go back five years and I see that you said something that we don't agree with anymore, canceled again. This is called virtue signaling, where you're saying things so that other people think you're better than what you truly are. And you're trying to hide all of the junk and hypocrisy inside of you by presenting something else to be offended or upset with. Winston Churchill said this. Winston Churchill, he said that whenever you live your life by pleasing other people, here's what you're doing. You're feeding the crocodiles, hoping they eat you last. That's the culture we live in. And that's the culture that they lived in too because virtue signaling has not changed in 3,000 years. And they have the best seats in the synagogue. They are positioning themselves so that way other people think they're more, oh, look at them, they're so special. Oh, look at them, they're so great. Oh, wow, look at you. Oh man, you are so, so good. They have the best seats in the synagogue because they would rather be seen by others than to be seen by God. They would rather be applauded by others than applauded by God. They would rather not offend others and live their entire life as an affront and offense to the living and holy God. This is who they are. This is self-righteousness because self-righteous people are gonna do what self-righteous people do. Craving attention, places of honor at the feast. They always want to be on the stage. They never wanna be behind the scenes. They want other people to serve them, but they're not willing to serve one another. They crave the attention that riches and wealth provide. They have crooked character. They devour widows' houses. Okay, listen, there is ways in which you can get rich in godly means. The book of Proverbs is all about how to earn wealth with wisdom, to work hard, to save, to invest, to steward, to budget, to spend, and to leave an inheritance for your children's children, right? Not just for today, but looking into the future. That's the way that God says, hey, here's some wisdom that you need to get if you wanna be able to handle your money. The Bible gives us options when it comes to that. But Proverbs also says some very strong words against people who make their money through ungodly means. It says there's six things that the Lord hates, that detests, that he abhors. And one of them is people who make money through dishonest means and use uneven scales, that they rip people off. They oppress the poor. This would be whenever you don't pay people an honest day's wage for the hard work that they do. When you defraud the government, when you cheat from your taxes, whenever you steal from your boss, all of those it reveals a crookedness that is in your character because you're making and earning money in ungodly means. And Jesus says that person will receive greater condemnation, which leads us to the last one, hypocrisy. Okay, here's what they say. They make long pretenses and prayers and they will receive greater condemnation. Now, true or false? There are hypocrites in the church. True, okay, you're here. We love you, welcome. Okay, there are hypocrites in the church, but the church isn't the only place that hypocrites love to hide. They love to hide in professional sports. They love to hide in Hollywood. They love to hide in big tech. They love to hide in politics. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go on a little rant for a moment because I have a microphone and you don't, ha <laughs> ha. But I am sick 
of politicians who are out of touch with reality. I'm sick of politicians who are telling us what we can and cannot do in order to be a good person, to be a good citizen, and to be a decent human being. I am just fed up with it. And it's not because of what they're saying. Listen, I get it. We're in a pandemic. I get it. Like the coronavirus is a real deal. I understand it. And I'm going to do my part to help out. I'm going to wash my hands. I'm going to try to not touch my face as much. I'll give you the elbow bump. I don't even mind wearing a mask when I go to the store. That's me. I don't mind those things. I'll do what I can to be able to help out. But when you make your pretenses, instead of long prayers, you stand up in front of a camera and you tell us that we can and cannot do certain things and then you go and do the very things you tell us not to do that's called hypocrisy when you say oh it's not safe for you to go to church but people can go to strip clubs that's called hypocrisy do you think a strip club is more sanitary than a church come on like they're slipping dollar bills we're trying to take communion there's a big difference there all right but we're not taking communion. They shouldn't be able to go to a strip club. I'm just saying, it's not fair, right? If you're, if you're gonna tell me you can't go see your family on Thanksgiving and then you get on an airplane, which is also dangerous, and you fly in an airplane across the country to go visit your family right after you hold a press conference telling people not to go visit their family, that's hypocrisy. When you shut down restaurants and you say it's too dangerous for people to go out to eat, but then you allow a Hollywood theater to be able to set up an outdoor dining right next to the one you just shut down, that's called hypocrisy. When you pass a law saying you can't do something and then immediately afterwards you're photographed doing the very thing they said not to do, that's hypocrisy. Here's what it is. Rules for thee, not for me. This is what self-righteous rich people do all the time because they think the rules don't apply to them. They think they are above the law because they make the law. The religious leaders, they thought the same thing. The hypocritical crooked politicians of our day, they think the exact same thing. Rules for thee, not for me. I make the laws, I don't have to live by the laws because I am above the law. That's all hypocrisy. And Jesus says you will receive greater condemnation because there is a responsibility that comes with riches. Are you using money to love people or do you love money and you abuse others? See, money is never a matter of the wallet. Money is always a matter of the heart. And when you see people using money to hurt others, they're the wickedest of all. Jesus says there will be greater condemnation for those. But that's not all that he says. He also says this is a lesson on stewardship. So he says, beware of self-righteousness. Some of you are like, do I still want to be rich? Well, it's also a lesson on stewardship. Here's what he says next. He goes on and he says this, and he sat down opposite of the treasury and he watched people putting money into the offering box. Now, I want you to notice something. This is the last public teaching that Jesus ever does in his ministry. Okay, after this, he is going to go and he's going to teach in Mark 13 about the second coming and the end of the world. That's going to be fun to study. Mark 14 starts his arrest and his crucifixion as well. Jesus for three years has been preaching and teaching and in the temple, he's already been preaching all day on this day. And the very last message that Jesus ever teaches is over money. One of the things that we hate talking about as a church. But Jesus don't mind talking about it. And some people wonder, why does the church have to talk about money? Why does the church talk about money? 
Okay, we talk about money because, well, the Bible talks about money. Some people are like, shouldn't, shouldn't Jesus teach a sermon over prayer? Shouldn't Jesus teach us how to, shouldn't, how to love one another? Isn't that the most important thing, right? I mean, why doesn't Jesus teach us how to have faith? Well, Jesus already did those things in Mark chapter 11. In this message series that we've been in, Mark has shown us that Jesus taught over faith, Jesus taught over prayer, and Jesus has already said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We've already covered those things. And now Jesus here is gonna talk about money. Why would Jesus talk about money? Well, here's what I think. I think he does it because he knows that the best way for you to grow in your faith is when you learn to trust God with your finances. Amen. One of the best ways for you to grow in your faith is by learning to trust God with your finances. Because the truth is, if you can trust God with your finances, you can learn to trust God with anything. Because the best way to grow in your faith is by trusting the Lord with your finances. Listen, here, here's how he says it here. He says, he sat down opposite of the treasury and watched the people put money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and she put in two small copper coins, the lepta, which equals about a penny. And he called the disciples to himself and said, truly, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than those who are contributing to the offering box. Why? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. They put in what they had, but she gave all that she had to live on. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but there's two things going on in this section. Number one, Jesus is counting the offering. See, y'all thought Doug counted the offering. No, no, no. Jesus, he's the one who's counting the offering. And Jesus not only sees what you give, he also sees what you keep. Jesus is the one who is counting the offering. Our deacons, they just put it in the bookkeeping software that we use. But Jesus, the one who's keeping records, he's the one who resorts, uh, rewards and measures what it is that not only do we give, but also what we keep. And this could be very exciting for some of you. Some of you are like, Jesus knows what I give. Woohoo! yeah! How do you like that, Jesus? And other people are like, oh, yeah, that's not very good. I thought he didn't see that. No, he sees it. He sees all. So number one, Jesus is counting the offering. But number two, he calls the disciples to himself. This is what I think is very fascinating because he goes to the disciples and says, hey, I want you to come see this. Come look. And there's a big commotion. People are giving their offerings. They're bringing it in and they're making their giving and they're dropping it in the offering box. And one thing we can understand about the way the offering boxes were then, they weren't little black boxes on the wall and they didn't pass the plate. They were actually set up. There was 13 of them and they were what is known as trumpets. They were brass boxes that were more shaped like a trumpet where there was a small opening in the top and then it went down at the base of it looked like a trumpet as well. So there was 13 of them and it was made out of brass and they didn't have paper dollars or online giving. So what they would do is they would put their coins in there and you would hear them tink, 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 tink on the bottom of the brass box. And so they're putting it in and it's a big spectacle and show. People are coming in and they're like, here's this coin, here's this coin, you know, bing, 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 bing. And they're just taking their, you know, their water gallon jug they've been saving all year and they're, oh, and they're just bringing that in here. And they're just like, oh, tick, 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 just pouring it all in, right? And this is going on all day long. And Jesus stops and says, hey, come here. I want to show you something. Look at all these people giving. And they're like, wow, look at them. Wow, did you see how much they gave? Oh, check that out. Oh, look at him in his long flowing robe, right? And they're watching all these people give. And she says, no, don't look at that. That's not what I'm talking about. Look over there. Well, I don't see it. I know you wouldn't see it if you weren't paying attention. 
But there's that widow over there. Did you see her? Did you see what she gave? No, I couldn't hear it. It didn't make a noise. It didn't make a difference. But Jesus saw it and he says, it was two pennies. It was two coins. It was two leptas. It was two slivers of a, of, a, of, a, of a coin. And that's what they gave. And that's the giving that caught God's attention. And he said, that's what I want to teach you about. That's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you a lesson over, over stewardship. And he uses this to be able to teach his disciples because Jesus understands something that many of us don't understand is that good stewardship is essential to good discipleship. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down. Good stewardship is essential to good discipleship. We talk about money in the church because the Bible talks about money. The Bible talks about faith and love about 500 times. The Bible talks about prayer about 800 times. But the Bible talks about money 3,000 times from Genesis to Revelation. We talk about money because not only does the Bible talk about it, but Jesus talks about it. One out of every four verses is in, in sermons that Jesus preaches is over the subject of money. One out of seven verses in the gospel of Luke is over money. So if I were to preach like Jesus, then every first Sunday of the month, we would have next steps and then we would preach about money. How many of you are gonna be looking forward to those Sundays every single month? We're just coming here, start talking about, no, we don't do it because people in the church get offended. They say, oh, the pastor just wants to talk about money. Oh, the church. This is only my third sermon over money all year. Okay, so if he wanted me to teach like Jesus, I am falling way short of the standard that God has set for us. And, and so, so we don't talk about it because people get offended. Now, let me just go ahead and say this. I have never met a generous person who's offended over the giving sermon because people who know how to tithe, well, they trust God. They don't get offended because they know that they can't outgive God and that God has continually made up for it even on the back end. And so generous people, they know the joy of generosity. People who give, they know that it works. People who give, they get inspired to give even more. I've never met a generous person who's got offended at the giving sermon. It's normally the people who their heart's in the wrong place who get offended over the, the, the giving sermon because they don't understand that the stewardship is essential to our discipleship. They don't grasp those things. They think it's the church's job to teach me about how do I have a better marriage? But then when the pastor hands out budget sheets, they're like, mm, that's not spiritual. But you don't realize this, that if you had a budget, you'd probably have a better marriage. People say, oh, oh, my mental health. The church needs to do more for mental health. But don't talk about my spending habits. But what you fail to recognize is there's a direct correlation between your spending habits and your mental health. We say, oh, the church should teach us how to pray and how to fast. But God forbid the pastor tell me I need to pray about how much fast food I eat. You're like, but it's Chick-fil-A. Listen, some of y'all paying y'all's tithes to Chick-fil-A, okay? Like, it don't matter if they're the Lord's calories, you cannot afford to eat there four times a week. I'm telling you the truth. Don't be tied into Chick-fil-A thinking that it's gonna make everything better. No, it might taste better, but you're still gonna be just as broke as you were before. You gotta understand that spiritual gifts are incredibly important. And we want the pastor to teach us how to discover our spiritual gifts. But did you know that giving is actually a spiritual gift? And if I'm not teaching you how to budget, save, steward, and give generously, then I'm robbing you of your spiritual gifts. That giving and stewardship 
is a spiritual discipline, the same importance of prayer and fasting and Bible reading. And if I don't teach you how to give, I'm not teaching you to develop your spiritual disciplines and I'm not teaching you how to discover your spiritual gifts because good stewardship is essential to good discipleship. So much so that Jesus thought it was vital to be the last lesson he teaches his disciples. Listen, how did you learn how to serve? This works in every area of our life. How did you learn how to serve? By watching other people serving. How did you learn how to pray? By getting around people who know how to pray. So wouldn't it also make sense that you would learn how to give by getting around people who know how to give? This is why Heart for the House is so incredibly important for us because you're getting to see how other people give. You wanna know that you're not giving alone, that your giving is not on by itself, that there are other people who are giving generously, who are investing in the kingdom of God through the local church. And when you gave your gift, you probably had no clue that there would be $47,000 on top of that, that other people were gonna give. And didn't that motivate you? Didn't that inspire you? Didn't that Fire you up a little bit to know that there's a generosity in this church. Amen. That's a credible thing because good stewardship is essential to good discipleship. So here's what we're going to do. Starting in 2021, we're going to kick off the year with 21 days of prayer and fasting starting on January 3rd. So go ahead, eat all the holiday cookies and ham that you can, because starting on January 3rd, we're going to do a 21 days, 2021, 21 days of prayer and fasting. And then Starting on December 3rd, I'm going to watch every single one of you give. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but what we are going to do is we're going to kick off the year with a four-week sermon series by Pastor Robert Morris from Gateway Church called The Blessed Life. And together, we are going to learn this important principle that good stewardship is essential to good discipleship. So looking forward to 2021. Get ready because it is going to be an exciting year, which leads us to the third point. That not only is it a warning to the self-righteous, not only is it a lesson on stewardship, but more than that, most importantly, this is an example of sacrifice. Look what it says. Truly I say to you, Jesus says to his disciples, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who have contributed into the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. Listen, I've been waiting to show you this all week long, but I got you a sermon illustration. No, Harold, you can stay right there. You don't gotta go. Y'all just be, y'all be good. Y'all be good, okay? It's gonna be fun. I have a sermon illustration that I wanna show for you. See, this widow woman, oh, thank you, Ethan. You gonna get that over there? How do we do this? Like this? That's not gonna work. We're gonna be all right. We're gonna make it. We're gonna make it. So when it comes to giving, some of you guys feel like your giving is that of the widow, that it's not gonna make a difference in the grand scheme of things, because there were other people who put in more in the offering box than the widow. There were some people, they put in large sums, but the giving that caught God's attention was the two coins that she gave. That's what he mattered. And so some of you, you feel like when it comes to your giving, like it's not gonna be that big of a deal. You're like, oh, well, my tithe is only $50 this week. And in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to make a big difference. So you think, well, I only have $20, or maybe my tithe is $300 for the month, and then I can use that in other ways and other means, but I just, there's other people who probably make more money that are going to be able to give better than me, so I'm just not going to give anyway. I want you to understand something. 
that whenever you give, God sees it, God recognizes it, and God rewards it. So let me give you an illustration about how this works. First, I'll bring this over here. Oh, let me, help me, give me a hand with this. Spin this thing around. Oh, come on. Everybody give an applaud for my boy, Ethan. Everybody give Ethan an applaud. Oh, they don't like you very much, Ethan. That's a bad applause. Did you hear that applause? They, that was... I don't know. There we go. All right. Let's set this bad boy right here. Okay. Uh, There we go. We already got a splash. Oh, y'all act like a bunch of cats. Y'all scared about water. You know, only dogs go to heaven. Cats, they go somewhere else, all right? We studied that in Jesus in heaven. It was a few weeks ago. It was a good sermon. All right. So when it comes to your giving, this is probably how the, the widow felt. Everybody else is given what they had and she comes in and she gives her offering and her offering was like this, right? So in the grand scheme of things, it probably wasn't much. It was two pennies. Two pennies ain't gonna pay for the temple. Two pennies ain't gonna buy a sacrifice. Two pennies ain't gonna line the priest's pocket. Two pennies ain't gonna do nothing. It's two pennies. You can't even buy a stick of gum for two pennies. But she comes in and she, in faith, she gives her two pennies. And here's probably what happened. That didn't make big of a difference, did it? That didn't really seem to do much of anything. It made a little splash, but it was nothing that was of any great significance. That's how some of you feel when it comes to your giving. Like it doesn't make a difference. It's not really gonna matter. Nobody's gonna miss my $20. Nobody doesn't miss my $50 this month. Nobody's gonna even notice whenever I give or if I don't give because it doesn't really make that big of a difference, right? Here's here's all it is. Yay. Good job. (laughs) Did I ever teach you guys how I learned how to give? No, I have, but y'all are being really quiet today, so I'm gonna tell you anyway. (laughs) How I learned how to give was I was about 22 years old. Me and Ashley had just gotten married and we were poor. I was waiting tables at a restaurant. I was in college full-time and we were living in about a 300 square foot apartment and it had bed bugs in it because we found our couch on the side of the road, which is probably why we also had bed bugs. And this is how we were when we got married. We were broke, we were poor. We were so poor, we were po. Okay, we couldn't afford the R, all right? That's how Poe we were. We were Poe. Like, that's why the logo for redemption is the R. I finally got the R, all right? Because we didn't have any money at all. And so I'm sitting there in church and I'm worshiping. And then one day the Holy Spirit, he began to speak to me. He said, Byron, do you love your church? I said, well, yes, Lord, of course I love my church. He said, well, why don't you give to your church? I'd been in that church for about three years and I never even gave a dime. This widow, she gave two pennies. I was like, she, I was like, I was like, she gave more money than me. Some of you are like, oh, I may not give much, but you know, I give like the, the widow. Listen, she gave everything. You give nothing. Big difference. Okay. And that's where I was at. I hadn't given a dime to that church. And so God said, Byron, do you love your church? I said, yes. He said, well, then why don't you give to your church? I said, hey, how about you go bother somebody else? And he's like, no, I'm talking to you, bro. And I was like, listen, look around everybody. There's people here who make more money than me. They're richer than me. They have things called jobs. They have 
insurance, they have families, they got a house, they have 401ks, right? There's some people, they have life insurance policies. I know there's about three people about to die of old age. Why don't you go ask them to leave it for the inheritance? Leave me alone, God. And God's like, I'm not talking about them. That was kind of funny. Y'all laughed on the inside. He said, I'm talking about you. Do you love your church? I said, yes. He said, then I want you to give to your church. So I said, "Mm, fine. Okay. So what I did was this. I went and I talked to my grandmother and I asked my Nana, I said, Nana, how much money are we supposed to give when it comes to the church? And she said, I want, you said, you're supposed to give a tithe. And I said, a tithe, right? Okay, so that rhymes with five. Does it mean I just give $5 whenever I feel like it? She said, no, it's a tithe. That means 10%, first and best, goes toward the Lord. So 10%, yes, 10%. And I thought, 10% is a lot, right? I I can't trust God with 10% of my money. At the time, I was making like $300 a week. So my tithe would have been like 30 bucks. And I didn't have enough faith to even trust God with $30. So I was like, I can't do that. So here's what I'm going to do. I instead am going to give whatever I make at my Saturday morning first cut lunch shift. Now, for those of you who work in the restaurant industry, you know, if you're first cut on Saturday, basically all you do is show up and roll silverware. That's it. And so I had enough faith to give to God the worst day of my week, right? That, that, that's all I had. I had enough faith to give him my worst. And so I said, God, whatever I make on a Saturday lunch shift, that's what I'm gonna give to you. But how many of you know, it's not good to, to do that to God, right? If you wanna make God laugh, tell him your plans because God sure was laughing up in heaven. He's like, ah, oh, see what I'm gonna do here. So that Saturday, kid you not, I made $100, $100. I came home and I'm like, Ashley, I'm at $100. We're rich. And she goes, you mean God's rich? And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, you told God that you were going to give that to him. You told God that you were going to give whatever it is that you made on a Saturday. So that ain't your money. That's God's money. I was like, but he won't be mad if we keep a little bit, would he? And he's like, uh, I was reading in Acts chapter four when God killed two people for doing that. <laughs> so you need to give it. And I thought, mm, I married you for a reason, didn't I? my lovely, godly, generous wife. So the next Sunday at church, here's what we're doing. The offering plate's coming by. And I'm like, oh God, I can't give. This is going to kill me. Oh, Lord Jesus, $100. I should have agreed to tithe. That would only been $30. Now I'm giving like four times what my tithe is. And the offering plate's coming by. And I'm like, is anybody looking? Is anybody looking? Nobody's going to see this. I could pretend to put money in. I can actually take a little bit of money out. We could do that way. But uh, so the offering plates come by. I'm like, okay, God, okay, God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. So I go, two, four, six, eight, hold your nose. Here it goes. Oh, that's it? That's it? That was my $100? Didn't really seem to make that big of a difference. I mean, I know it ain't keeping the lights on. I know it ain't paying the mortgage or the pastoral staff. That's not even enough to buy a new pedal board for the band. Ain't feeding 500 people Thanksgiving dinners with that. Didn't seem like it made that big of a difference. That's how some of you feel. Some of you feel like your giving doesn't make that big of a difference. When they're counting the offering in the back and they're passing and they're going, oh, hey, look, Byron gave, Byron gave a, 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 what is that? Oh, he just gave $100. Okay, nice. And then they moved on to the next person and that was my giving. That was what I did. And most of you, that's the way that you see your giving. And for most people, that's the way others see your giving. 
That's probably the way that the rich people in the temple that day looked at the widow as she made her offering. That's probably what the disciples saw when she made her offering. Hey, did you see that over there? Look, you're not even paying attention. You would probably miss it if you didn't even see it. But that's not what Jesus saw on that day. Because Jesus doesn't see things the way that we see things. This is the way that most people see it, maybe the way that you see it, but if you learn to view money from God's perspective, on that day, this is what Jesus saw. Some of y'all getting baptized early today. This, this is what Jesus saw. Oh, come on. Do you know why? Because God does not measure your giving based upon the size, but based on the sacrifice. This widow gave more because she sacrificed. Some of you, as you give, you are sacrificially giving. Some people give what they have, but there's others who trust God with all that they have. There are some people who may give more in size, but not by sacrifice. And there are some people who give little, but according to God, they give way much more than anybody else because God does not measure your giving based upon the size of the offering, but the sacrifice it took for you to give it. God does not measure your giving based upon the size, but based upon your sacrifice. God sees what you give. God knows what you give. And God rewards it when you give. Do you know how I know that this woman gave more than anybody else? because we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. That this widow woman, she gave two slivers of a penny. And yet it has inspired a tidal wave of generosity for 2,000 years. People like you who give sacrificially because of her example of sacrifice. People like you who believe that God is doing great work in the world through the church. And you give sacrificially, because she set a testimony and an example of what giving is supposed to look like for Christians. You know, this woman right now, she's in heaven, but she has not yet stood before the great white throne judgment of God where God gives away his rewards. So she's in heaven right now, and probably one, she don't know that Jesus was even watching her that day in the temple. She don't even, might, might not even know that we're talking about her today. She don't even know that people know that she gave two pennies. And that's going to be a great day when she stands before the Lord and says, here's your reward. You might have been the poorest woman on earth, but because of those two pennies, you are now the richest woman in heaven. God does not measure your giving based upon the size of the offering, but by the sacrifice that you give. So would you rather be rich or poor? It's not the right question. Here's what matters most the heart behind why you give. That's what matters the most. The heart behind why you give. 
All week long, I was reminded of a quote from the great missionary Jim Elliott. He says this, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What Jesus teaches about money for many people is foolishness. We want to be rich. We want to be successful. We want the house, the car. We want the life. We want the Instagram followers. We want the prestige. We want the honor. We want the respect. And then Jesus says, give to the Lord your all. And for some people, that might seem foolish. For some people, the way that me and my wife, the way that we manage our money, many people think that's foolish. For the widow who gave her last two pennies, people say that's foolishness. But where God, where man sees foolishness, God sees faith. So the question is not, would you rather be rich or poor? The question is, will you be found faithful?